Welcome to View from the C-Suite, where we have candid conversations with female executives about key business challenges, career advice, and more. This series is brought to you by Wong Duty, the global experience and design unit for Infosys. I'm Skylar Matson, your host and president of Wong Duty. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to our global audience tuning in. Would it surprise you to know that people trust business more than they trust government or media? And they see business as the only institution that's both competent and ethical. Today, we're talking trust, how to build it, how to maintain it, how to repair it if something goes wrong. Welcome to the sixth episode of View from the C-Suite, Women Leaders in Conversation. I'm Skylar Matson, president of Wong Duty, the global experience and design unit for Infosys. As many of you know, uh, we feature C-suite leaders from a variety of disciplines on the show. And today I'm so excited because we have two marketers and my background is in marketing. And so I know firsthand how challenging, how complex, and even how rewarding the job can be. I recently read in the Wall Street Journal that boards demand greatness from their CMOs, more than other C-suite positions. And they expect them to be customer champions, of course, um, frontline defenders of the brand, but also stewards of internal culture and drivers of overall company growth. I mean, is that all? (laughs) As you'll see today, my guests have a handle on all of it. And I know you're so excited for me to introduce them, but A quick reminder to all of you, our amazing audience, we will be taking your questions during the last 15 minutes of this 45-minute segment. You do not have to wait until the end to start popping in questions. You can go down into this Q&A function um, right here in Zoom and ask away. Um, Also, we'd love it if you join us on Twitter. And if you use this hashtag, WomenEmpowerEM, Uh, we will be able to locate your tweets so we can respond and we can keep the conversation going. Okay, on to these introductions. I am honored to introduce Michelle Fro, SVP of Global Marketing Strategy and Sciences at MetLife. Michelle leads the stewardship of the brand. She's responsible for identifying customer insights, measuring impact through analytics, and lots of other things. Uh, Michelle joined MetLife from Samsung, where she led their digital transformation strategy. She's a board member of the Marketing Society New York and was named one of brand innovators' top 100 women in brand marketing. I love that. Thank you for being here, Michelle. Thank you, Skylar. It's wonderful to be here. I'm also so happy to welcome Dee McLaughlin, SVP of Global Brand Marketing at Capital Group, where she's built and launched a global brand platform for the very first time in Capital Group's 90-year history. Wow. Previously, Dee has worked at some of the coolest and most well-known brands in the world, like MTV, Forever 21, the Virgin Entertainment Group. She's a member of the American Marketing Association, the Academy of Television Arts and Science, and Brand 50, an invitation-only group of Fortune 500 marketing executives. Amazing. Dee, thank you so much for being here. Honored to be here, Skylar. Thank you. 
So there's a lot of areas we could dig into when we talk customer relationships. But today, we're going to focus on one element. I mean, probably one of the most important elements, trust. According to a global survey done for the 2021 Edelman Trust Barometer, in the majority of countries, people trusted business more than NGOs, government, or the media, and people trusted their own employer most of all. Okay. I mean, it's nice to see this sort of glimmer of hope in business. Finally, there's been a lot of doom and gloom, but now if we have this trust, how do we maintain it? So Dee, I want to jump in with you just very broadly. How does marketing and branding play this role in building trust with customers? Yeah, you, you know, um, it's really interesting you bring up um, Edelman's trust barometer. You know, it, it also shows how financial services, which of course is what I'm in, compares versus other industries. And spoiler alert, it's <laughs> financial industries are towards the bottom. And I think what's quite interesting is the size of the trust gap between people who work in financial services, you know, like me, and those who don't. And it is the highest gap between insiders and outsiders of any industry measured by Edelman. So people inside the industry seem um, really conscious of the good intent and the actions that are just not seen by outside the industry. You know, Capital Group's president, Rob Lovelace, says that trust is our competitive advantage. And, and, you know, when I came on board, I thought, what does that mean? You know, you know, capital comes from a position of strength. So 2.6, we're a $2.6 trillion company, but there's always room to grow. So for us as marketers, we have to maintain the trust of our intermediaries and the investors that we've built over 90 years, but we also have to grow more. And I think this is where marketing and branding can be very successful. Um, I think broadly, it's good to remind each other on some of the fundamentals of what the word brand means. For us, a capital group, the simplest one is that brand is a trust contract that we build every day with our clients. So for example, every time a wholesaler meets with an advisor, so let's call him Paul, it's a brand conversation. Paul is thinking, is this brand reliable? Are they consistent in how they show up? Is it someone I can trust? So Skylar, think of brands that you love. Every time you buy that brand, you think rationally, so this is a super smart decision, but emotionally with your heart, you feel really super good about that decision. But anytime that gets violated, that trust gets broken, which is why you have to nurture it and be consistent. And then of course, um, it isn't just brand and marketing activity. You know, I think Forrester recently came out and said it takes 21 touch points for our clients to, to consider um, purchasing. So it's the online experience, it's every interaction, mobile web, how we talk in social media, what we say in press, you know, what Michelle and I are gonna say now, it reinforces who we are. So for Capital, we've been building this, this um, brand. We signed this trust contract 90 years ago. And I know for Michelle, she's been building that trust in that life even longer. Uh, I think even before the phone was invented, right? It's been like, you know, a, 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 a century and a half. Wow, Dee. I mean, 21 touch points and also so many people within the company who are out there interacting with customers they need to be consistent as well. 
How do you ensure that consistency across those touch points, across the various people within the company who have the opportunity to be in front of customers and either help reinforce that 90 years of trust or potentially uh, put it at risk? Yeah, it's, um, it's it, you know, some people, some people like to call it the brand police um, uh, fondly. And, um, uh, but it is about consistency. It, it is um, about having a lot of discipline, uh, particularly when you're a global company on um, uh, uh, a lot of uh, sort of um, style guides, templates, all of that and how you speak about yourself. So even if you think personally on how you show up um, as a person, if you were showing up very differently to, um, uh, to your friend, uh, from one day, from one week to the next, they're not going to stay friends with you, you know, or you're not going to stay friends with that with that person if you if you show up like um, as a very kind person one 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 time you meet them and then as like you know um, a bit of a loser or someone super grumpy the next time. Uh, um, so again, it's by consistency and and in all those touch points, it used to be actually quite much easier uh, to have um, a more consistent brand because there wasn't as many touch points um, as there is these days. But now it really is about looking across all the touch points that we have, um, and they're pretty fractured, and and ensuring that um, all teams all associates, um, and not just frontline, like, you know, everybody is, is almost speaking from the same hymnal. Yep. Yep. I mean, brand has so many emotional components, yet there are so many tactical necessities to ensure that it continuously gets put into the world in the right way. Um, Michelle, I want to bring you into the conversation and talk about what you're doing to build trust with customers at MetLife. Sure. And, you know, Dee um, brought up exactly what I was going to bring up in the beginning. Um, Dee, we're in the same boat with uh, financial services and and trust. Um, so, you know, I think it's important to note, even in, in that Edelman study, that there was a decline in trust across all industries, really. Um, but financial services, wow, we're not only were we the least trusted, <laughs> you know, there's a much steeper decline than, than the rest. And and so for, for us, I think, you know, we think about trust um, essentially as the ultimate currency in a relationship. You started with relationships, Skylar. And that, you know, brands need to, to build um, that, that currency. And so, you know, we do take that really seriously in that life. Um, and, and, you know, even though we've been historically challenged with a trust, trust gap, you know, we're consistently the least trusted industry. Um, and even if we've recovered, you know, there's, there's this uh, deep decline. So um, we, we knew we needed to build trust by really leaning into the relationships that we have with customers. Um, so we measure the health of our relationship with customers. And, and we do that with, uh, in a lot of different ways, but um, particularly through MPS. Um, and one of the things that we've seen is that a key driver of that metric is actually trust. And um, so we wanted to understand, well, what does that really mean, you know, for our customers and, and what drives it? How can we impact it? And to do so kind of took a very deep and local approach to make sure we weren't making any assumptions. Um, uh, we explored the meaning of trust for our industry 
which for insurance companies, you know, is all about keeping promises. Do we have a good reputation for ensuring people have the right products to protect who and what they care about, right? Um, and then most importantly, I think, you know, we're listening and understanding what builds and what breaks trust because it is a relationship. And as, as with any relationship, like Dee was just mentioning, you know, you have to go into, um, you know, to really understand what builds and maintains it because boy, that trust can erode so quickly, even with a single negative interaction or feeling, um, that we care more about us than we care about our customers, right? And that's and that's because I think it's really about what we do versus what we say, right? So then we focused on, okay, so what are those tangibles and intangibles that are associated with, with building trust? And, you know, there's a lot of longstanding intangible drivers of trust, such as company longevity, be 150 years, for example, <laughs> thanks for that, Dee, um, and your reputation, but those are built over time. Um, and, um, you know, a trust-based relationship like that happens when customers believe that the company will deliver on its promises with quality and dependability. But then there are more immediate tangible drivers of trust, like clear communication or direct access to their policy or their investment information, or when we demonstrate genuine caring and customers feel that we're working on their behalf. We also had a couple surprises though, when we dug into this research and um, on certain actions that could build trust, such as a simple, reliable claim payment system, right? Or how companies treat their employees was also a way that um, uh, built trust. So the last area I would call out of ways we're doing that is we have actually have the entire organization committed to focus on the customer. And that means all of us better understanding what our customers are telling us, especially in the research that we do. So in order to go deep in this area, what I would say is you, you have to be a little bit more provocative sometimes too in how you do that research. Um, for example, in, in this research I was just talking about, you know, we use some new techniques like facial coding during our interviews to go deeper into understanding the real emotions, like you were saying, behind trust. Oh, that's fascinating. I love the idea of looking at these facial cues to really get at it. You know, it's sometimes hard when you're doing research to really get to the heart of, of what's happening. We've recently done some research. We didn't use anything cool like facial cues in it, but I'm, I'm, I'm noting, I'm noting that, but we did some research with Gen Z and financial services and wanting to understand how we build trust with this new generation. And a couple of things came up. The first was proving your purpose showing you have authentic values, you're living these values. Michelle, you said, you know, what we do more than what we say, really important to Gen Z. Um, the second is protecting personal data. I mean, data privacy is, is such a hot, important topic right now. Um, Dee, let's come back to you. I want to know how Capital Group is, is perhaps using purpose. I mean, trust being one of the in the values from the very beginning, how are you using purpose to really build these relationships? Yeah, it's a, it's a big one for us. I, I, you know, how I look at it is, you know, of course, many of us know um, um, Simon Sinek's talk about how, you know, how great leaders inspire action. 
And he speaks about, of course, how anything, how everything starts with why. And, and I believe purpose tells clients why our brand exists. And this explanation of why tends to engender trust. So Cynic says, people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. There, there was a pretty comprehensive study picked up by Forbes on the value of purpose. It, uh, if anyone wants to search for it, it was called um, Strength of Purpose. Uh, and um, there were some pretty interesting facts on, on that. Um, uh, some of them were um, brands, I'm going to read my notes here, brands um, with recognized purpose are four times more likely to be purchased and six times more likely to be protected by consumers during challenges. 94% of consumers want companies to have a strong purpose, um, but only 37% are considered to have a strong purpose. And a little bit of what you were getting at, Skylar, um, the importance of purpose is stronger amongst younger generations and progressively gets weaker by age. And um, globally, the most important elements of purpose are not the same. So for example, in the US, it's about how they treat associates, but in Asia, it is more most important to meet the needs of the consumer. So just super interesting stuff in, in, in that Forbes piece. So how do we think about a capital? Um, the world our, cons our, our consumers and clients live in is, is super overwhelming. We know that every day gets more challenging and more crowded and it's harder for them to trust anyone in our Michelle and I's industry. So our mission, um, uh, um, is to improve people's lives through successful investing. All our associates know it. They are super energized by it. Um, um, and, and so the, the brand program is one of the ways we cut through the complexity of our clients' lives, uh, our clients' lives with our very distinctive voice. And, and it's how we show our value proposition. Because how you build a powerful brand is by building and reinforcing um, a series of shortcuts that come to mind when people think of your brand. So what, what do I mean when I say a series of shortcuts? Let me take you through um, a couple of like, say, retailer examples. So Skylar, when I say the name of a retailer, I want you to shout out the words that come to mind. Walmart. Cheap. Chanel. Luxurious. Correct. Right. So, you know, if you have that shortcut, you know, that is um, that's super, super important. And um, uh, uh, it's getting to that shortcut um, uh, in, in, uh, in your um, clients or your consumers or your customers minds. It's reassuring, you know, it's it's for them. So we live um, um, our um, we we live that um, for our customers. We try to tell our story um, at scale. We believe that that um, that that getting to that purpose, telling you know what our mission is. Um, we believe that's important because it, our advisors, our investors, need to know who we are, why we exist, what we stand for. Yep. I want to repeat something you said I wrote down. People don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. Which Yeah, that, yeah that's Simon Sinek. That's yeah. not me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to be very clear. <laughs> Great quote. Your, your genius use of quote. So, Michelle, let's, let's come back to MetLife and, and Gen Z. And what have you seen with their needs? And, I mean, gosh, do you just sort of outlined how, like, People have different needs based on their generation, based on where they live, 
you know, their, their global experiences. It's really hard to make everyone happy, but let's talk about Gen Z because very important right now. Um, what are you learning about them, Michelle, and maybe some, some best practices for the rest of us to, to note? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I, I feel like I learn a lot every day because when my kids are that age, <laughs> Gen Z, <laughs> Um, but, uh, you know, let, let me actually start with something that, um, is really interesting that happened last year. Um, we, we do monitor also, uh, what customer needs are, uh, across the globe. And last year, um, with, with COVID culminating plus a whole lot of other things that kind of led up to that, there was this new dimension of trust that emerged and that was honesty and transparency. Um, that became the top customer needs across markets for our industry and financial services. And it has remained so and has actually even significantly increased in importance during the pandemic. Um, and now, you know, that's actually so that's consistent across all generations. But what we saw was that there were some other related needs that were significantly higher for Gen Z. Um, and those were things like shares my values or has a clear purpose or role in society. Um, so, you know, we've consistently seen this in our research as well as our partners research. And, you know, really Gen Z more than any other generation is driven by ethics and social impact. Yes. Um, but I do think there's another interesting area. Uh, Gen Z is actually under a lot of pressure right now. You know, they, they feel a lot more worried about the aspects of their holistic health more than any other generation. Um, and for instance, in our research, we saw that a vast majority of Gen Z are worried about their financial health in particular and their mental health much, much more than other generations. So, you know, this pressure really has some impact on their behaviors and their attitudes. And, um, you know, even though we've seen a, re a revert to kind of more short-term things during the pandemic. It's even more true for younger generations because they're eager to see some more immediate benefits when purchasing financial products. Got it. I think honesty and transparency across the board, values, purpose, so important for, for Gen Z. Um, Michelle, I want to stick with you because we've I think we've had some good conversation around building trust, around maintaining trust. And sometimes things don't always go according to plan. And I know in your previous role at Samsung, you had, let's call it the opportunity to build, rebuild trust. And I'd love to give you uh, the floor to share what you experienced and how you rebuilt trust when you were put in that opportunity. <laughs> yes, it was uh, it was an exciting time for sure. So, um, well, I think the first thing that leaders should keep in mind is, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste. Right behind every problem, there is an opportunity, and more importantly, a lesson. And um, I think, you know, actually, we all probably can relate to that one after these two years, right? So um, when Note 7 started catching on fire, uh, Samsung was absolutely the right place to be if you wanted to get an MBA in crisis management, um, which I did. And so um, I think the first lesson there was no one person or function could own the problem alone 
or fully own the customer experience. So it was really incredible um, to see how the entire organization could come together and deliver for the customer really in new ways for us to get closer even, because historically we didn't really have access to to our customers um, as direct as you might think, and uh, really create the opportunity to create those relationships. Um, I think the second lesson might have been to give, um, you know, give your team some freedom. So for me, leading the brand recovery was an amazing experience because we had license to try new things to build back trust. Um, and, you know, so we kind of had to accept that haters are going to be haters. And instead, um, we decided, let's turn our attention to our most loyal customers, actually. And, and those happened to be the note customers. Um, so we created new ways to engage with them, virtual sessions with live Q&A with our leadership um, that had never been done, listening sessions to really understand like what are new needs and their ideas on how to deliver, um, and then enabling our customers to share their stories um, and, you know, and uh, do other things like um, first ever uh, invites to a live unpack. And there were so many more, but, you know, those things all contributed to real, authentic, loyal voices in the mix. And that's actually what helped the brand to recover within a year. Wow. Within a year. So impressive. You were able to find this silver lining, this opportunity to try new things. But I have to ask, as a leader in that position, that had to have been an oh shit moment. Like personally for you leading this team. What was it like when you first became aware of what was happening and sort of the pressure to fix it hit? Well, like I said, you know, it, it wasn't on me personally, and it wasn't on marketing <laughs> personally. It was a full um, effort across the entire organization. And so um, actually it was fairly uh, inspiring of a of, uh, uh, of an experience because, you know, we, we bridged new connections um, through that and new ideas. And so, for example, you know, I think the functions, marketing, sales, customer service, others became closer and better understood um, how we could leverage each other's expertise to, um, you know, deliver better things in the future. So it was a great experience. It was an all hands on deck. We are all in this. We are all going to find I want to pivot. You're starting to talk about teams and think about the importance of trust internally with our own teams. And Michelle, how are you building trust with your teams? So when those oh shit moments happen, it is a, we've got this, we're all coming together and we're going to support one another. Um, well, I kind of would go back to what I was talking about earlier that, you know, trust is really the ultimate currency in a relationship. So I think you have to lean into um, an authentic intent to build relationships because that goes a long way. Um, so, you know, within my team, I think creating um, a culture of inclusion and transparency has really been key to building trust. And, you know, some examples might be like co-creating our vision of where we want to go and then having, you know, regular check-ins on, on that progress. 
Um, I also make uh, a lot of time to make sure we have, I have skip level discussions as a priority and keep those lines of communication open. But I think one of the most impactful things is having an open and inclusive culture of conversations. You know, so not only just trying to work in a more agile manner, but, you know, eliminate presentation meetings, have work in process meetings where everyone's encouraged to share their point of view and ideas, and then really empower people to make decisions. So um, that's, those are some of the areas we do. Of course, that extends to the relationships you have across the organization. You need to nurture those and ensure you deliver on the promises you make and uh, make yourself available, you know, for those discussions and alignments. I like that. Empowerment shows someone that you trust them. And then that in turn builds, builds mutual trust. Dee, what about you with your teams? How are you building internal trust? Oh, I'm going to answer that two ways, sort of pre-COVID and then I, I don't know if we're considered post-COVID, but I'll, I'll answer that. So, you know, Richard Branson, the head of Virgin, told me this many years ago. He said, Dee, it doesn't matter what genius idea that you come up with if you don't do these two things. And so, my successes through the last 20 years have always been because I got these two pillars right. Um, and I didn't always get them right, but when I did, that's that's what that was the result. So one is uh, create um, a culture of appreciation. So however you do it, um, uh, I, I do small lunches. Um, I do, um, we have a kudos platform at work. Uh, I do a weekly newsletter, pra- practice gratitude. People don't need a trophy, just write it down. You know, thank you note. Um, uh, secondly is, um, if you're a team leader, give them a career path. So, um, and we do a lot of, um, career workshops, you know, I put a lot of money and time into, um, budget for learning development, mentoring, a lot of mentoring. Um, Richard was always associate first. So associate first, customer second, money, fifth or sixth. So I learned a lot from him and I, um, many years ago, and I really practice it. I would say over the last 18 months, it has um, been about um, uh, empathetic leadership. I think this is mission critical. You are a counselor in chief um, in many ways, you know, so creating a compassionate work environment um, where associates feel valued, can voice their opinions and concerns freely is essential. And I will say this, I, I can't tell how many women are on this call, but this is what women, this is our superpower. This is our superpower. It is our time. Um, I, I lean into it, lean into it. This is, you know, this is it. This is our time. Um, and then I would also say candor. There's a lot of uh, this workplace right now, a ton of anxiety in it um, and also cynicism. And I think people respond better to the known. So even if the news isn't great, um, then the unknown, which tends to fuel more anxiety or worse half-truths or irresponsible optimism. Women, this is our time. Lean into it. Empathy is our superpower. I was getting chills as you as you were saying those things. So this is usually the moment where I pop into the Q&A, but I have one more question for each of you before I share the questioning with others. I'm feeling very like I want to keep you to myself, but everybody who's, who's watching will get to your questions in just a minute. But you both have, have shared so many amazing best practices. And I I can feel that you are empathetic leaders and you are such skilled leaders. And I'm interested to know, um, Dee will stay with you and then I can come to Michelle. 
what has helped you outside of work uh, be this leader that you are today? Ooh, that's a, that is a good question. Um, Outside of work. Um, You know, we talk a lot in in our careers about uh, pursuing dreams, you know, um, goals, finding passions, and, and living lives with meaning and purpose, right? But I think in the midst of all of this, and particularly over the last 18 months, it's easy to forget there are people who work three jobs um, to keep the lights on and put food on the table. Uh, um, there are people who don't have clean drinking water, yes, in America, um, uh, and, and don't know where they're going to eat tomorrow. So if you're lucky enough to be exploring a life or searching for a career with greater meaning and purpose, um, you live a privileged life. Thank you for that. Michelle? So I'm not sh- completely sure this is outside of work, <laughs> but um, you know something that I've I've uh, experienced that I think has helped me as a leader would be living abroad. Um, that was an experience that I, I really do feel like further shaped me as as a leader. I think it gave me and of course my whole family um, an invaluable opportunity to be immersed in other cultures. Um, and then, you know, with all the life and social and even work decisions, it required me to seek to understand really before I took action. Um, and that's something I definitely aim to demonstrate as a leader, you know, listening to multiple perspectives um, to really understand before you make a decision or before you take action. And, um, you know, I, I get that opportunity every day um, to listen to, you know, perspectives from around the globe, not only with uh, my partners and colleagues, but also from our customers. Um, and I, I do try and foster that, you know, in our marketing community as well. So you, you mentioned I was um, co-chair of the Marketing Society, and, and that's a great global community, you know, that really is a, a network of change makers who can help you understand and bring you those multiple perspectives, but also, you know, that you can contribute to. So. So important. Listen, seek to understand. Oh my gosh. Okay. I am seeing these Q and A's pop up. I'm, I'm looking over, I can't read them all and then decide. So I'm just going to sort of zoom in on one. Um, I love the men that join view from the C-suite and support us. So I'm going to start with a question from Steve White. Um, this is interesting as interactions move more onto digital channels how are you addressing accessibility for all types of users as a trust building exercise? Accessibility. Do either one of you feel compelled to jump in with, with that, that question? Uh, um, maybe I need more clarity. Uh, is this an ADA um, type of question? I think uh, so. Yeah, think- yeah. Um, uh, we are currently um, working on um, uh, being fully ADA compliant on everything that we are doing right now. Uh, uh, so that is a uh, actually a huge piece of um, of uh, what Capital Group is working on. Uh, um, uh, either like websites, quite frankly, PDFs. Um, a lot of what we um, 
um, what we as a group have been have been working through um, this year. Um, there's uh, so it's front, it's actually front and center for us. Thank you. So I promised you these Q and A's were going to be really easy, but as I am zooming through these, these are these are really excellent and and some challenging questions. So so bear with me as I as I throw a question. Uh-huh. To <laughs> Michelle, this is Skyler. Okay. So D, you took that one. Michelle, this is for you. This is from Randy Schwartz. Um, in this age of customer profiling and database personalization, can a mainstream and scalable brand like MetLife be all things to all people? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Thanks, I Randy, know. for the question. <laughs> Thanks, Randy. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I... Can we, I don't think we um, aim to be all things to all people, um, right? We aim to be the right thing for for you, um, right? And so, uh, one of the, um, I would say there's there's a couple of mindset, you know, changes and and work innovation work going on across the company to one provide people with more flexibility. Um, in and customization, so not not necessarily in their just in messaging, but really in the types of products um, that you know are are best suited for them. Um, whether that's a life stage or um, a different uh, you know type of need that that they have, um, and then I think and and you know even that that really extends into DEI too. Really understanding the needs of underrepresented. Um, communities and and having flexibility in the products and solutions that we offer. And I think, you know, you can provide a lot of flexibility and solutions when um, there are added services or or other um, experiences that, you know, can be tailored to to people. So, you know, right, right people, right products, right time, you know, I think that's still very relevant <laughs> today. Yep. Michelle, I'm going to stay with you for this next one because I think you're on a roll with this. This is from Bridget Judd. This is something that I think a lot of marketers are wondering about. In the spirit of sharing brand values, what's a brand's role in issues that can be polarizing? Government policy, systemic racism. I mean, we have been thrown a lot in the last 18 months. And as marketers, it's very tricky to figure out how to be a part of a cultural conversation that can be very polarizing. Yeah, it can be. And I think, you know, what, what companies and, and brands need to do is stay very true to their purpose. Right. And, um, and, and that is your, your guiding um, North star of, of, of what you are, what you stand for and therefore what, what values are important to you as a company and a brand so that you can authentically engage in um, those types of issues. Right. You can't go wrong when you're being authentic and when you're being true to your purpose. It's like a nice place to always come back to when things seem really challenging. Um, Dee, this next one is for you. Or do you want to jump in? in Yeah, please. Tyler, I'd like to jump in on that one as well, because this one has been, um, this one has been a, 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 a bit of a, just to speak on behalf of capital, um, there's been a, a, definitely an increased scrutiny. I, I certainly appreciate that question. 
there's been an increased scrutiny in our industry to be value focused and to visibly demonstrate support, you know, for gender equality, inclusion in the workplace, to stand up for racial equity and to use our business collide to drive positive change. Um, you know, so I, I, I just appreciate that. And I'd, lo- I'd love to just get a chance to address it. I, I think, you know, um, DE&I are, are part of every RFP we receive, you know, um, and we, we expect the same from the companies we invest in. Um, uh, capital sent letters from our top leadership to, you know, it was like 1,600 portfolio companies that we invest in, asking them to share their DE&I data. Um, I, I also, there's also an increased expectation now, you know, from our associates um, uh, that we take a public stance on social issues. Uh, you know, we have been a, um, a, a, our company for 90 years. We've always operated with integrity. This goes back to internally, like what I said at the, at the top of the hour, that, you know, internally, we know we operate with integrity, just externally, people really don't. Um, but we've always operated typically very quietly. Um, so this has had a very, the last sort of, you know, 18 months have had a very profound shift um, um, for um, our company. Um, and uh, it's also been a shift of trust to allow our associates to engage publicly and often to to guide our actions. So um, I, I appreciate the question and I, and I think all companies uh, uh, need to engage uh, um, in it. Indeed. Michelle, here's a question for you from Ajit. Um, he says, great dialogue and insight. So thank you first. And then how are you addressing incorporating empathy as part of brand messaging? Are you being intentional about trying to incorporate that into campaign work? Well, um, again, I, I think it's more about what you do than what you say. So what I'll what I'll comment on there is that um, you know that is a empathy is a key way to build trust with your customers, right? And um, I believe isn't it this week uh, customer service week? Uh, we is should it? really uh, I believe so. Um, we should really you know uh, there are heroes in in this process because they're really the front line a lot. Um, a lot of times who are talking to our customers, right? As our agents and, and others as well. And like I said before, you know, when you um, demonstrate a genuine caring and empathy for your, your customers, that absolutely um, builds trust. So that's how we try and do it. Um, it isn't, it's more about our actions and, and what we do. Actions, always come back to actions, what you do, not what you say. I love it. Um, Dee, here's a question for you. And I I really like this question because a lot of times when we're having these conversations, we're talking about what we as leaders are doing. And we know that the people joining us today are across a lot of different levels in their company. Um, It just moved, but I think I remember it. It's from Amanda Weibel. And it's, you know, what advice can we share with employees who are trying to build trust with their teams? How can we all lead this effort, regardless of what position we're in in the company? Um, yeah, becoming. Um, I think becoming a leader is a process. You know, it, it doesn't. It doesn't happen in one day. Um, so I, uh, you know, I, 
there are, there are multiple, first of all, there are multiple ways of doing it. I, I think it's really important to get comfortable with the fact that leadership is a journey and to become really adept at asking for and receiving feedback. Um, uh, it is a really fast way to build trust. Uh, um, I have been next to, in, in my career, many executives who, after giving a speech, will, you know, or chairing a meeting, will turn around and say, you know, how did I do? Uh, and I've come to understand there's a lot of power in that question, you know. Um, and so the, to me, the best leaders use that feedback to continually sharpen their game. But what it also does to the people around you is that it starts to build trust really, really quickly. And feedback is hard. You know, it's hard to it's, it's, it's difficult to give. It's difficult to receive. And I think if, you, the, the, you know, as as leaders, no matter where you are, you know, junior leaders, senior leaders, um, the, the more often you can give and receive feedback and the more often you ask for it, it's not often people actually ask for it. Um, you can build trust much quicker with your with your teams, with each other um, when it's when it's given, received um, uh, on a regular basis. Indeed, not easy to ask for, but really important. We have a minute left. I want to ask one of my questions that I didn't get to ask before for each of you. And if you can keep it brief, advice you'd give your 30-year-old self. And we will close out on this. Michelle, do you want to go? I saw a little smile there. Sure. I was hoping you were going to ask that question. Well, actually, I might I might, might want to tell my 25-year-old self this, but okay. um, take the curvy road and enjoy the ride. Um, so instead of being like overly concerned about creating a straight line up, you know, really enjoy the twists and turns of like lateral moves or being the new kid, whether that's in new organizations or functions or industries and communities, you know, you, you can really learn so much. D, advice to your 25, 30-year-old self? Yeah, um, for me, the single biggest blocker um, I, I see in becoming more of who you are is imposter syndrome. I used to think I had to imitate the leadership style of other leaders, and those were mainly um, white men. But when I did, I, I, I started to experience imposter syndrome. And people will define this differently for themselves, but it was like all of my achievements were gained by luck and not by the hard work I had put in. And I, I had a great mentor at the time who was super authentic leader who explained to me that many people, um, I think it's actually 70% experience it and it was all part of growth. And he helped me work my way out of it and to recognize my weaknesses and to harness my strengths. So I wish I hadn't known about that. Uh, I didn't even know what it was called. Um, but, uh, it definitely was a blocker for me when I was younger. And, um, and so I, I talk about it very, very openly, um, now, but, um, I wish I'd known about it then. Take the curvy road, work through imposter syndrome, be yourself. Don't be anyone else. Yeah. Words of wisdom. I hate rapping because I'm so enjoying this. I'll call you guys right after this. Thank you so much, Michelle. Thank you so much, Dee, to our wonderful audience. Thank you for being so engaged and throwing some really great questions out there for us today. That is a wrap on the sixth episode of View from the C-Suite, Women Leaders in Conversation. And please join us again next month when the conversation continues. Find out more about Wong Duty's work transforming businesses through human experience. Go to WongDuty.com.
If you're a woman in the C-suite and would like to be a guest on this show, please reach out to me at womenleaders at wongduty.com.